KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. This is Jeremy Frank, and we are starting a new series of interviews where we'll be looking at the workforce of American manufacturing and especially the, where the workforce comes from. And we're starting today at Penn State University with the Dean of Engineering at Penn State, Justin Schwartz. How are you doing today, Justin? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Thanks for having me today. Oh, glad to. Glad to. I, I'm really looking forward to having a chance to just talk through some really important aspects of what drives the future of engineering, particularly. And um, I'd like to just dive right in, if that's okay. Sure, let's go. Engineers Great. are always so, ready. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, maybe I think if you could just tell us a little bit about what brought you to Penn State, you know, how kind of where your career has taken you and why you came here and, and how you ended up here at Penn State as dean. Sure. Um, so it's been a bit of a winding road. I grew up uh, just out of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois, which um, if you're familiar with universities is the home of uh, Northwestern University. Um, that's why I was there as a as a child. My dad was an engineering faculty at Northwestern. My uh, mother got her doctorate in special ed at Northwestern and was on faculty at University of Illinois in Chicago. My stepfather was uh, a Penn State um, PhD alum and psychology professor at Northwestern. So I, of course, having grown up there, immediately went to Illinois as an undergrad in my big state school um, and majored in nuclear engineering, got my bachelor's degree. Um, spent a couple summers working and, and holiday periods working at Commonwealth Edison in Chicago. Uh, <clears throat> for grad school, went to MIT, um, did my doctorate there. Um, spent the summer before that actually at Boston Edison uh, in the nuclear industry as well. Uh, and then after grad school, went back to Illinois on faculty in nuclear engineering. Spent a few years um, at my alma mater. And then the National Science Foundation moved a major national laboratory from MIT where I had done my grad work um, and rebuilt it basically from scratch at uh, Florida State University. So I moved down there to join that new enterprise to help build a new lab while also uh, being faculty in mechanical engineering. Spent 16 years with, uh, with the FAMU FSU College of Engineering and then moved to NC State as the department head for material science and engineering. Spent eight uh, wonderful years at NC State, and then the opportunity um, to be dean at Penn State uh, opened up. Um, it was one the type of opportunity that if you're in uh, engineering academia, you, you can't not consider strongly. And so um, I got nominated. I went through the process and was you know, privileged and, and honored to be selected as the, the 12th dean of engineering in the 124 and a half year history of, of Penn State. Um, wow. Why, yeah, well, why, congratulations. Thank you. And, and also, I mean, I, I, you, you've accomplished quite a lot in the time that you've been here, I would say. I, I don't know that I could rattle off the accomplishments, but accomplishments, but I do know in terms of, you know, the, the research funding that's, that's, um, that's fueling Penn State's uh, ongoing, you know, the top-notch research and then just the, the growth of the programs and the faculty and, and adapting them to match the needs of, uh, of manufacturing and industry and other uh, other engineering uh, demands is just, uh, it's quite a lot. I think there's, I, I would say from my point of view, having been here for 25 years, 
there's a lot of really positive activity. So congratulations on both of those fronts. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I will say we've had, um, this is my fourth year now, we have had, you know, tremendous support from the university, you know, across the board in, in many ways. Um, before I got here, Penn State Engineering went through a period of 10 years where the number of undergraduates in the program grew by like 45%. So the growth in engineering undergraduates at Penn State was bigger than the total number of undergrads in almost every other college at the university. Um, and it's hard. And at the same time, just by happenstance, the university had a voluntary retirement program. So our faculty growth was not nearly as big and robust as our um, student growth was. But since, um, you know, since I started in 2017, so I include the people that started about the same time as me, we've actually added 111 tenure, tenure track faculty to our college. So that's like 30% of the faculty have been just in these three and a half years. Wow. And so we have a, um, in fact, if I look at the median uh, faculty member in terms of experience in the college, it's only about eight years. So we have um, rapidly growing, but also a very, you know, sort of young and dynamic, forward-looking faculty in our college. And not to say that the ones that have been here longer aren't also dynamic and forward-looking, um, but it just gives a, a vibe and an energy um, that you just don't find in most engineering colleges. So just last year, we added over 30 new faculty. Some of them won't come for a year or two because, you know, as you know, when you have the opportunity to recruit somebody great, if you have to wait a little bit for them to start, you do. And we, even though we're in, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty right now because of COVID and things, um, we have another 20 tenure line faculty searches going on now as well. So um, wow. the university support has been tremendous. And, you know, as you've, as you've seen being local, you know, there's construction on campus and we're looking at a couple new buildings going up to, to house and support engineering as well. So it's a good time to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You can just, you can really just feel the energy. What, what do you, you know, so you've been at uh, these other universities and spent significant time at each of them, at, at three of them, four of them. Uh, and, you know, some of them are similar in some ways to Penn State. What are you finding that you like about it? Or, or is it, is it going well for you? Or are you enjoying it? At Penn State, I love it. So there are certainly some similarities. I say that um, I've been in land-grant universities since I graduated high school. Uh, MIT is, in fact, a land grant, though people don't necessarily realize that. Um, I didn't know that. But it's, but it's interesting that um, you know, each university embraces that land grant mindset in different ways. And you know, NC State certainly embraced it significantly. Um, I would say at the time I was at Illinois, they didn't so much, but that was a long time ago. So I wouldn't say now that they don't. And I hear from people that are there that they do more than they used to. But there is nowhere I've been that embraces and talks about the land grant mission and what it means to us today more than than we do here. Um, so you know, land grant history is you know it was the transformation of U.S. universities from being you know really just focused on the elite um, and sort of the Ivy League mentality, whether it was Ivy League or not, to really being a robust system. Um, for education and advancement of you know, the entire population. So land grant started really with three missions, agriculture, engineering, and uh, defense. It was called military science back then. Um, but really with this aim of accessibility and affordability for, for everybody. And so 
you know, our undergraduate population is still over 30% first in family to go to college. Um, and we talk about issues of affordability and access of our students. You know, it's, it's one of the number one themes that we talk about regularly in terms of how we advance the university. Um, and so the land-grant universities tend to, to be larger and they tend to have really strong engineering. So, you know, it's not coincidence that that's what I focused on as I've moved from place to place. The thing that, that I think makes Penn State stand out significantly from the other places I've been, however, um, is our ability to work across um, disciplinary boundaries within themes, topical themes. So um, the University of California Riverside did an assessment um, about a year or two ago, I think it was, where they were looking at these things. Universities do these things called cluster hires, where the university makes a decision, we're going to hire you know, eight faculty in sensors, but they're not necessarily going to be in any one department. They're going to be you know, the eight best people we can find that fit together to build a team focused on sensors, and they'll be in whatever department makes sense. So UC Riverside was thinking of doing a cluster hire, I think, and so they decided to assess what happened across the country with cluster hires going back to um, the early 90s when the idea really started, I think, at, at Wisconsin first. Um, and they actually came to an interesting conclusion. They came to the conclusion that cluster hiring across the United States had failed everywhere in every single example, except for one exception. And that one exception was Penn State. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's because Penn State has really built into its mindset and culture this interdisciplinary idea of working together. Um, we are not built on siloed organizations. We are built on people who recognize the value of working in teams, um, who recognize the value in peers and colleagues across the university. Um, and then we bake that into the system with, you know, with our institutes. And so we have the Institute, Materials Research Institute, like Institutes for Life Science, Institutes for Energy Environment, um, Institute for Computational Data Science. Um, I'm going to feel bad for the ones I forget to mention. There's a few others. Um, Penn State Cancer Research Institute, Rock Institute for Rock Ethics Institute, uh, and Social Science Research Institute. Don't forget them. Um, and what this has done is while those institutes are focused on the research side, it creates this environment of interdisciplinary collaboration across, you know, that, that broaches into the academics also. So um, one of these two buildings that we're building now to bring this home to engineering is one that's actually already has broken ground and will be the first new building for engineering to open up um, in about two years. Um, is focused on undergraduate education for all engineering disciplines um, with the idea being, let's bring all of our students together that are in engineering, regardless of major, and have infrastructure to support them to work together you know, in whatever it is they're doing. So our first year engineering program is, you know, includes a course like eDesign 100. It brings all of our students together. Um, it also, there's, there's also a freshman seminar, and this brings students together so that we have you know students who are anticipating being in engineering, science, mechanics, working with mechanical engineering, working with um, electrical engineering, and, and doing things together with that mindset of, of partnership. Um, and then the same facility will will house our learning factory, which is our capstone design facility. Um, Right now, it's in an older building that's that's right near where the new one's going up, but it's going to grow in physical size by about a factor of five. 
um, from roughly 6,000 square feet to about 30,000 square feet as a, you know, we call it a makerspace, but that's only, it doesn't fully describe what we envision. Um, we're talking about a uh, design platform space, makerspace, prototype space, manufacturing space. We're also going to bring our manufacturing education facility into that building. Now, you said five times bigger, 30,000 30, feet. I mean, yeah. 30,000 square feet. Well, yeah, five times bigger than Learning Factory, with also with expanded mission, right? Yeah. But the idea. I, mean, is I know it well. That's a that's a place where I think you know we have we've actually mm -hmm. donated technology and work actively with the groups. And I mean, right. back back to when I was in undergrad and grad school, I spent a lot of time cutting parts on the milling machines in the in the Learning Factory. So if increasing the capacity of that by five times, that is that is a significant um, investment in capability. Wow. Yes. And, and that's the goal. You know, we looked at what Learning Factory could do and it's great, but we need, I think in my vision, we need to transform it from being, you know, a, a sort of production facility, which is valuable, right. To, you know, I want a student to be able to walk into that building at any point in their career, whether it's part of a class or just something they thought of when they're at the gym, um, sit down, take their idea, do the computer design work, right and then be able to go to 3D print and then go to prototype and you know, have the ability to include, you know, not just the, the, the physical construction, but anything on the electrical electronic side and the coding side, and then even have that vision of how it links to manufacturing by having manufacturing, the fame lab will move there also right there on the floor in that one facility. And as they're sitting there working on their project on their idea, they won't have all the disciplinary knowledge they need, right? But there'll be other students around who might, and so create this opportunity um, to to move their ideations forward in a real way, so they get that that experience of um, you know self motivation and and looking for the expertise they need to do what it is they need to do. I was I was talking to an alum about this who um, graduated Penn State Engineering back in 1967. Um, had a fantastic career in industry, uh, spent some of his career at GE um, during GE's heyday. And when I described this to him, he just looked at me like, yeah, that's how we do it in industry. Like, I mean, it was sort of matter of fact, you know, of course, that's how things should be. But it's actually kind of new to academia to think about keeping our students together as much as possible, you know, even while they're getting their discipline centric classroom experiences you know, that, that follow the curricula that match ABET so they can get their accredited degree, keeping the environment rich for this kind of interaction, you know, an opportunity space is just not commonly done in academia. And that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to make sure our students have the, you know, you know my, my job as Dean of Engineering, one of my jobs is to make sure that every student I graduate is more ready for whatever it is he or she wants to do next than anybody else. We've got over 8,000 undergraduates in the program. They all have different ideas of what to do next. I need them all to be ready to do what it is they want to do next. And to me, this is a central piece of it. Um, you know, even though we're doing a lot of remote learning now and hybrid learning, um, you know, we're learning a lot about how to do things through remote tools effectively. But I don't think we're finding that we can just get rid of hands-on education. You know, sure. I think in the long run, um, you know, learning to better utilize remote tools just enables us to do a better job also of hands-on, right, by virtue of freeing up space and resources to, to, do, to commit more to the hands-on part. And that's what we're looking to do with this new facility 
Um, and with it, we'll be doing an assessment of, you know, our, our undergraduate curriculum in that, that intersecting space as well. So we've got the time it takes to build the building to also, you know, re-energize and rethink about the way we do our programs. How do we, you know, we have some students who are in industrial manufacturing engineering, and they really want to focus on manufacturing. Fantastic. I have a lot of other students who don't want to have a, you know, don't think of their career as being manufacturing, but they want and need exposure to manufacturing and understanding of it because, you know, design without understanding manufacturing can can have some real pitfalls, right? Um, you've got to be able to make what you design. And so trying to find ways to just give that broader exposure across um, the disciplines and across the spectrum of engineering activity is, is really what we're trying to accomplish. That's great. Let me pull it back, Justin, because I, you know, one of the things we talked about when we checked in last week is just, you know, both for our hiring. I mean, we've been hiring a lot of people, especially out of Penn State engineering, but, you know, just across the board, but, but especially the, the customers we serve, you know, industrial mm -hmm. companies, manufacturing companies, it's so clear that that's what they need. You know, they need smart students with kind of cross-functional, diverse experiences who can work with other people. I don't think too many people would challenge me on that. The thing you said that I thought was really interesting is that from the student point of view, first of all, that number that only, you know, the, the maybe between the, the foreign students and the 30%, you know, first in their family to college, roughly half of the students are the first person realistically, you know, getting a college degree in America and yep. they just want a job, but they don't just want right. a job. They want to do something important and make, make the world yeah. a better place. Can you speak yes. to, you know, what you do to try to enable that? Sure. So, you know, that, that, that process for us really begins with messaging to students who aren't students at Penn State yet, high schoolers, right, and even younger. Um, you know, what we see in this generation of students is, like you said, you know, the goal of having impact. So I was sitting around my first year as dean at a table, a you know, 10-seat table, nine uh, high school seniors and me, and they were all, you know, in classic form, looking at their phones and typing, and nobody was actually talking to each other. Um, <laughs> so I said, hey, let's have a quick conversation. I said, I'm just curious, when do you decide that you want to do engineering and why? Um, and literally one after the other, you know, the when was actually interesting, it was only in their last couple of years of high school, which tells me that um, as long as we keep students that are younger than high school engaged in mathematics so they're they're being they're preparing themselves we have that window in high school to reach them um and they only gave basically they, they said it different ways but they only gave two answers for why they chose engineering about half of them said you know my dad's an engineer my mom's an engineer my grandfather's an engineer my sister's an engineer my brother's an engineer it's the family business right the other half to a person talked about having impact so none of them said you know, I like to tinker with my car and I want to learn how cars work, right? Which is sort of the my generation mindset. Um, none of it was, you know, I want to build a faster this or a, or a, you know, a stronger that. They all said, you know, one, one girl looked up from her phone, looked me in the eye, said, you know, I want to improve the world. And so, of course, I chose engineering. And then she went right back to her phone. It was sort of a matter of fact mindset that, um, <laughs> but that told me that when students understand what engineering is, right? that it's taking human knowledge and applying it to bettering human life and society, they want to be engineers. It's that simple. 
this generation is really focused on that impact piece. And so it's interesting we, that they make that connection, though, too, because um, I wouldn't necessarily assume that a high school student would 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 make that connection naturally. You know, you might think that you have to run for political office or something, whereas right. I think you and I both know it's extremely true that yep. engineering is is probably either the or a one of the most impactful uh, roles in society you can provide, especially just like the, right. the the manufacturing side of it. I mean, the needs are just so strong and going to get stronger that's as, right. as the workforce challenges really um, become more, more significant. Right. So that's great to hear actually. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've taken it upon ourselves to try to make sure that get that message gets out, right? It's, it's actually to me from a point of view of, of trying to recruit good students into engineering it actually was was refreshing, not just to know that, you know, the children who are going to, the, the children, the high school kids are going to grow up and take care of me when I'm retired, are focused on impacting the world, not just on themselves. Um, but it also told me that as a dean of engineering was trying to recruit more students, you know, into the discipline, that if all I have to do is explain to them that they're going to have impact, they're going to be interested. That's a lot easier, right? That's an easy message to convey. So we built out, um, and I think you've seen these. Um, a, a suite of videos. We have a five minute video for every single engineering major in our college where the, the presentation is the impact that that major can have on the world, right? So, you know, it's hosted by, you know, one of our faculty, but it's got current students talking. It's got alums talking about what they're doing in their, in their jobs, how their job is letting them have impact. Um, and every department has one and, you know, the energy and pride in the discipline comes out, but the impact of the discipline is just, uh, just a, a resonant message that comes across over and over again. So we're hoping those videos will do two things. One, get more and more students interested in engineering. And, you know, of course we hope they come to Penn State, but, you know, we need more engineers across this country, not just in Penn State can only produce so many of them. Um, and then, you know, but also we hope that helps them, you know, make the right choice in terms of which engineering discipline to go into. Because that's something we worry about in that, um, you know, students coming out of high school, you know, there's there's different levels of familiarity with the different degree paths and making sure they choose the one that really makes the most sense for them rather than the one that they just heard more about is really important also to student success. Because another thing we focus on a lot is student success. We want our students to join our program thrive in our program and graduate and get to you. And part of that is then making sure that they make the right choices early, right? So that they don't get a couple of years in and say, wow, I don't know why I'm doing this EE, I'd rather be an ME or why am I doing ME, I'd rather be doing BME, right? And so we want our students to really understand, you know, the, the, the whole 360 view of the engineering world. Yeah, those just for the, for the listeners, I, we'll definitely post uh, some of the videos that, that Justin is describing. They, they really are fantastic. I'm a little biased to the mechanical engineering one just because that's the program I came from. And, um, and it's just really, it's really quite excellent. It, it absolutely describes what you said. I mean, you watch it and you just feel inspired because there's just, there's so many ways to make a difference. It's also, I'll just give a shout out to um, I, when I, when I rewatched that video last week, uh, I was reminded that Kelly Karski, uh, formerly Kelly Lentz, she was actually an intern at KCF while she was in school and worked on some of these these uh, hands-on learning factory projects. 
but then also worked at, at our company while she was in school. And, and she ended up going to work in the, uh, as, a, as an engineer serving the power industry. But it just gives a great example of, you know, what a person is focused on while they're in school, but then what they accomplished five years later. I'm curious to ask that, how do you, so, so you're the dean and you're looking at how to have the best match between the students' desires and having them prepared for, for what they most want to do. How do you measure that? Do you have, what, what do you consider the best way to measure that successful preparation and, and fit? Oh, that's, that's tough. I mean, um, you know, how you, to a certain extent, you look at how often do students try to change majors late, and we don't have a lot of that. Um, but part of that is, you know, is the practical side. Students who want to go into engineering will realize that even if they, as long as they do well, if they graduate in, you know, the major that may not have been the optimum for them, you know, getting into something else isn't that hard within engineering if you have an engineering degree. Right. And I'm, I'm a living example. Right. So I have bachelor's and Ph.D. in nuclear engineering, spent three and a half years nuclear engineering faculty, 16 years mechanical engineering faculty, eight years material science department head. And at Penn State, my home department is engineering science and mechanics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and my work has gone from, um, you know, ceramic materials processing of superconductors to their magnetic behavior. You know, now most of my work is focusing on real-time distributed sensors with optical fibers, you know, in, in cryogenic systems. So, um, you know, in engineering, and this is the other point we make to to potential engineering students is, if you get a bachelor's degree in engineering, you have really not closed many doors in terms of your future. Um, you know, sure, if you wanted to be a concert violinist, maybe it took you away from that. But I'll have students, you know, I'll talk to high school kids and they're like, yeah, you know, I can't decide whether I want to go into business, a business degree or an engineering degree. And I say to them, well, if you get your business degree, I'm sure you won't become an engineer. If you get your engineering degree, you could very well become a CEO of a business. So there's your, so that should answer your question, which one to go into, right? Um, sure. Because engineers go into, you know, leading roles in, in business and industry. They go into leading roles in the military. They go into med school, they go to law school, right? They become accountants. They do that while doing engineering also in some cases. Um, it is truly one of the most flexible degree platforms one can launch from. No doubt. I'm, <laughs> it's funny, I'm just, I'm, I'm reflecting. I, uh, in some way I would have not measured well against your criteria. I, I actually considered changing my major or at least changing my discipline right towards the end of, of when I was doing mechanical engineering at Penn State, I, I thought about shifting my course focus and applying to medical school as I think as late as my senior year. And I talked to a, a career advisor who promptly told me that was a really lousy idea <laughs> uh, based on what, you know, what, what we talked about. And I kind right. of realized that, that uh, they were right. Although then subsequently, I never even uh, got or even applied for a full-time job. I went into to grad school and still didn't apply for a full-time job. But nonetheless, I ended up as a CEO. So I think right. as long as you have right. a long enough view, yep. you can measure success how you how you like. That's right. Well, I, I'll often joke with the students and tell them, if I can't tell them what they're going to do with their career, but I can pretty surely tell them the one thing they won't do with their career. And that's whatever it is they currently think they're going to do with their career. <laughs> <laughs> That is, I like the way you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Because people, you do, I, you know, I go and I speak at classes 
you know, a, a few times every semester. And that is a question, that, a question that, that recurs is that the students want advice on what they should do next. And I, I have a really hard time not saying just don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. Right. Uh, like thinking about it doesn't, well, it's actually thinking about it is good, but worrying about it is what I try to suggest is just a, a waste of time because there's so mm -hmm. many different possibilities. It's like a, it's like a flag would, waving, you know, flying through the I air. I tell them whatever they do, try to choose paths that don't close too many other doors. Hmm. Right. And so, you know, if they're really torn between, you know, path one and path two, you know, if path one really is potentially a dead end and, and takes you down a road that doesn't leave you flexibility for what comes next and after that, but path two does, that may be a differentiating factor for, for thinking about what to do. Right. Keep your options open, you know, as your as your career develops, you know, add add to your skill set, add to your experience base. Um, and, and remember that, you know, you'll you'll move from A to B at times, but you know, always leave on as good a terms as you came in. And and don't, you know, don't disregard the importance of, of relationships. Yeah. And keep keep your options open for sure. That's good advice. Yeah. Justin, I want to shift gears for just a second. Sure. I wanted to when we talked, we talked a little bit, a little bit about on the industrial side. So, mm -hmm. you know, where the students are going, a lot of them is into industry and you have the industrial professional advisory committee, I believe it's called. I Correct. Think. Yep. Yes. Can you just describe a little bit about why, why that exists and who participates and what the purpose is? Sure. So we have, um, IPAC is big. We have, uh, you know, 13 departments in the college, 12 of them have their own IPAC and the 13th is actually starting to build it out. Um, and the idea is that each department has this group of say 10, 12, um, mostly industrial leaders. There's a couple from academia, a couple from labs, depending on the specific department. Um, many of them are alums, but not all. And the idea is, you know, we live in academia, but we are serving so many different aspects of society that we need strong advisory uh, input from industry, mostly industry, um, to help us make sure that we are, you know, fulfilling our role in this bigger societal ecosystem, right? And so, um, you know, historically we've, the way we've functioned is everybody, the whole team, so it's about 140 um, people across all the departments come to campus for a couple of days, Right. They start out getting a college overview from me, um, you know, updates on all the different things that are happening. And then, you know, usually the college poses a couple of topics for them to talk about. Um, and then they break up and go to their individual departments where they'll talk about the things that maybe the college put forward, you know, in the context of that department. And then also get updates on what that department is doing and get feed and give the department feedback on different things they're working on. Um, they serve a role in our, our ABET review. We're, you know, we're supposed to get uh, industry survey feedback on our curricula and, and how those are doing. So they serve that role also. Um, but it gives, a, gives us a chance to get input from, you know, some really, really smart people in the, in the field about, you know, is our undergraduate program serving today's need, but also tomorrow's need? Are our graduate programs serving today's need and tomorrow's need? Are we thinking about, you know, the right research topics to, to, to partner with industry? Um, so that's been going, we've been doing that every year. And then the iPad, each group 
you know, gets together without us and, and puts together their thoughts and their feedback and they present it to the departments and they present it all to me. Um, and they make recommendations that, you know, we try to, you know, we, we really do take to heart and implement and, and you know, it helps steer our thinking. Um, I know the department heads think it's a great way to get me, the dean, to, to give them what they need. Um, but it's also a great tool for me to understand, you know, the bigger picture and to, to work with the university to help make sure that the college is, is remaining at the forefront. Um, and this, what, are, what would you say you've learned, you know, recently or, you know, especially what are the gaps? Like what are the what are the biggest gaps between what you're hearing that they need and what is currently happening at Penn State? So, um, you know, one of the things that, that, of course, wasn't a surprise is, you know, the the. Um, propagation of the need for more and more understanding of computation um, across disciplines. Um, you know, we, we knew that, but it was, you know, we live in our bubble. We thought that was the case, but it's all, often what you, we get is, is confirmation as well as, as new insight. Um, the other thing that we've got, we've gotten from various sectors, which we've, we're, you know, we're happy to really work and engage with, um, is this issue of you know the leaky pipeline and, and diversity and equity inclusion issues? So, you know, some of the larger employers would come to me and say, "Hey, you know, we hire fifty engineers one year, and five years later or ten years later, you know, all twenty-five men that we hired are pretty much still with us, and most of the women have left us. What we need your help? What can we do?" Right? Um, and similar stories for for hiring uh, African American or, or Latinx right? This leaky pipeline. And, you know, at first my thought was, well, you know, I don't know how I can help you at your site in your culture. Um, but, the, you know, the more I thought about it, you know, we graduate at Penn State over 2,000 engineers a year. So that means over the next decade, I'll graduate over 20,000 engineers who, whether they go to grad school first or not, are mostly going out there into the workforce, right? They're, they're, they're engineers in, in your company, you know, companies like yours, companies like GM, you know, Defense Labs, Lockheed Martin, you know, all over the place. And my job is to make them the most, you know, most desired student that's graduating when they graduate. And it occurred to me that, you know, it's become so clear to our industry friends now that the culture at their workplace is so important for talent retention um, and that's amplified when they are focusing on retaining female talent, retaining you know, underrepresented group talent from the different groups. But that culture isn't, you know, isn't dependent upon just how many women they hire and how many black engineers they hire and how many Latinx engineers they hire. It's really dependent on the behavior and, and culture of, you know, the white males that they hire, right? And you know, the white females in terms of, of you know, racial demographic issues. And so, you know, it occurred to me that our, part of our job is making sure that all of our engineers are gonna graduate and be a positive contribution to their work culture, no matter what their demographic is, right? Whether they're first in family from the farm or, you know, fourth in family to college from a big city, regardless of race, regardless of gender, everyone needs to come out with this understanding and appreciation of the value of a diverse group, right? So just as we recognize easily that a group that has different engineering disciplines together, you know, an EE working with an ME, working with a manufacturing engineer, working with a biomedical engineer, 
to develop a great bio device, you know, needs that intellectual diversity. Understanding the importance of diversity along demographic axes, you know, is also just as important to their success. So we are now looking at, um, you know, these issues related to equity, you know, not only as a, you know, a mission of how do we support all of our students so that, you know, the, the smaller population students can, can feel welcome and graduate, but how do we actually um, help all of our students understand the importance of professionalism, which is really to me what it is, uh, professionalism in their careers. And so this is something that, you know, we were talking about and thinking about, but, you know, our interactions with IPAC also very much helped us frame it in this context of not only, you know, a, a social justice perspective, but also a professional obligation. It's my obligation to train all of my students, right? To be the type of person you wanna hire and that will help your company thrive. And if, they are, if they're a great engineer technically and their behavior causes you to lose three people a year, that's not necessarily a winning proposition for you, right? And so looking at it from that perspective, you know, that industry perspective, I think helped us uh, think through you know, this bigger picture aspect of, of how do we train an engineer to be a success in the 21st century workplace? It's really interesting, Justin. And it's, I mean, yeah, the, just this topic of equity and inclusion is, is just such an important one. And it's, uh, you know, I feel, I don't know if I'm biased or not, but I, I feel like that's something that Penn State generally has a, a, a really strong reputation for already, but mm -hmm. it's never good enough. I mean, just, just right. to... Um, to really make that a, a strong effort. I know I appreciate that as a, as a you know, company hiring lots of engineers from Penn State. It's so important. I mean, just creating mm -hmm. that culture. If, if you're starting with people who are already, you know, trained for, for just, you know, professionalism and respect, it's just, it's uh, everybody, it, it's one of those things that just benefits everyone. Right. And, I, are you able to measure any impact? Or do you have any stories of, of, you know, what's going on or how, how the effort's going in that regard? We're getting there. So we are, um, you know, we've been ramping this, this discussion and dialogue up over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, our current conversation right now is, you know, I mentioned before in the, in the, with respect to the new building and being post ABET, looking at our first year curriculum, we're looking at how do we embed this into, you know, design? How do you teach engineering while also teaching the importance of diverse thought and equity, right? So, you know, how do you get someone to think about you're designing, you know, something, you're not just designing it for a six foot, 195 pound man, you might be designing it for a five foot two pregnant female, right? And, and infusing the, the human piece into the design space, I think is really important for, for creating, um, you know, the more valuable, more impactful engineers. So we're talking about how we do this in our curriculum, you know, through, you know, in the first year experience, but throughout. Um, I was actually at a, on a Zoom meeting this week um, with what we call the Big Ten Plus deans. So it's all the Big Ten engineering deans plus a handful of others from other universities that we, we invite, even though they're not Big Ten. Um, and I brought this whole topic up of, you know, how do we infuse this into our undergraduate program. And, you know, our plan is to, you know, think about how we as a group of deans can communicate with the American Society of Engineering Education and try to get this to be a, uh, 
a professional community initiative, not just, you know, a series of universities trying to do this. And we're talking about how do we go to ABET and have them think about, you know, including under the engineering ethics rubric, um, you know, the issue of how are, how are we all teaching engineering equity? Because, you know, I want Penn State to stand out. I want us to be, you know, the leaders in everything we do. Um, but on a topic like, like equity, you know, I I'd rather us be leaders in transforming the profession than simply leaders in the academic space. Right. So mm. we're going to do this and we're going to we're going to infuse this in our curriculum and our engineers are going to be you know, ready to, to, to give you a positive culture on day one. But frankly, I'd be happier if every engineer in the United States graduated with that. You know, I don't want to be the only engineering school that's teaching thermodynamics. Right. That would be that would make no sense. And mm. so, you know, also keeping in mind, right, selfishly, we're going to recruit students from other schools into our graduate programs. I'd like them, just like you want them to be ready to be good, you know, cultural citizens on day one. So do I. We're going to hire faculty from all different universities across the country. I want faculty who understand this concept. So, you know, to me, this is somewhere where we're going to be amongst a handful of universities that are leaders. But ultimately, we hope that everybody catches up. Yeah, that's a great aspiration. I, uh, I so appreciate that again, both as a, as a company, but just as a citizen, I, um, I, what we actually are running up against our time, Justin, if you can believe yep. that, but wow. it's, it's been a, fa a fascinating conversation, but I have a couple of questions that actually this flows really nicely into. Sure. Um, cause you know, it's interesting. We've talked about a lot of really positive things, but this, the, the question of equity and inclusion and, and race issues particularly has been such a challenging one this year, but really, I want you to take this wherever you would. I'm just curious from your role and what you've been doing the last three, four years and what you see ahead, what, what are the big, what is the biggest challenge that, that faces us that isn't solved yet that you really want to work on and you wish you could just sort of snap your fingers and solve? Uh, you mean in, in, in human society or you mean in academia? I guess I mostly mean in the context of Penn State engineering, right. um, but really take it, take it as you will. Sure. So, um, you know, in the context of Penn State engineering, it's it, the challenge is, um, you know, we have some big challenges in society. And, you know, I kind of look at the balance of my department's focus on excellence within their department. And my focus is on these interfaces between engineering and other disciplines. Right. So, how do we in Penn State engineering make sure that, you know, we are becoming a, a leadership voice in solving humanity's problems, right? And we always, engineering always has been, you know, a leading player in solving humanity's problems. But I think historically, we were sort of a societal toolkit, right? A problem comes up, you go to the toolkit of engineering, you pick out the one you need and you fix the problem, and then you put us back in. I think we have become so technical as a society, as a species, that engineers need to not just be, you know, standing by and ready to help, but really taking more of a leadership role in saying, this is a problem and this is how we solve it. Um, I think you've seen that happen sort of naturally with COVID. Um, you know, you look across the country and how many universities have these big efforts to scale up manufacturing of, of, you know, 
PPE and other needs of hospitals scale up, you know, and already, you know, industrial engineers looking at how will we do mass production of a vaccine when it's ready? How do we scale up distribution, which is really as much an engineering issue as a human issue? Um, so I, I think engineering needs to think about how to change its own role and assume a mantle of leadership that it necess hasn't necessarily done before. Um, you know, even before COVID, I would comment to, you know, people in the life sciences here at Penn State and say, look, you know, I know that, that this may not be a popular opinion, but in my view, in the next 20 years, there will be more medical advances and breakthroughs coming out of engineering than out of the more traditional biological sciences. And not in the absence of the biological sciences, but because engineering is now incorporating biological sciences to such a great extent as one of our core you know, one of our core scientific underpinnings. Um, and we are so focused on impacting the world. And, you know, the interface of humans and technology is growing so rapidly. You know, we see it in, in um, autonomy space, but we also see it in the medical space. And so, you know, the solutions for climate change are known. Many of them are engineering, but some of them are not. But this concept of implementation is something that's important to us. So seeing, to me, the big challenge is, you know, engineering taking a leadership seat at the table when it needs to and continuing to be seen as a partner when that's appropriate. So, you know, at Penn State, we just launched a couple of years ago, a big initiative to combat, to combat addiction. And when the program was first being formulated, engineering wasn't really involved. Um, but then as it emerged, our role became clear. And so now we are very much participating in that. It's, it's housed where it should be in the Social Science Research Institute, but engineering has an important role in solving a problem that, you know, the, the you know, person who's out there that's not technical, that's not looking at universities, um, may not have immediately thought that, oh yeah, we need engineers involved in fighting addiction, but we do. And uh, so having, having that mindset permeate engineering and then society recognizing it is to me um, important. I mean, I joke all the time, you know, imagine if, if uh, the, the government in DC, the, the Senate and House was, you know, full of engineers rather than lawyers, how would we be doing? <laughs> right? And I have friends who are lawyers. So, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm saying that, you know, with respect for lawyers, but engineers are trained to solve problems. And that problem solving mindset um, is so important in today's world. It's true. It is. I mean, it's funny to think about that. It really would be marvelous. I, I, I have to think, mm -hmm. you know, that it might not be as social, but it would be, it would be far more productive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Less yelling and more problem solving. <laughs> but so I'm curious, you know, I, I, I just completely agree with what you just described. I mean, our whole company, our focus is just that, that exact convergence. You know, there's no real shortage of technology. There's so much at our fingertips. It's just a matter of putting people in a position where they can use that technology to solve problems. And that's what, I mean, that's what engineering, especially mechanical is. And there, there's a really, I think there's a diversity of outcomes. If you, if you look out like 10 or 20 years, you know, it, there's some people that would say it, the earth is going to be a big, you know, dirty fireball and everyone's going to be dead or nearly dead. And the, you know, species will all be degraded. And there's other people that I think look at it and say, we can solve all these problems and it'll be unicorns and butterflies and, and blue sunny days. 
I'm curious what you think. How do you, how do you, from your vantage point, seeing all these students come through a place like Penn State, are you feeling positive about where we're going to be in 10 or 20 years? Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm all, I mean, I'm an optimist uh, in general. I grew up a Cubs fan, so you had to be. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think about, um, you probably don't expect to hear me quoting Faulkner, um, but, you know, in Faulkner's uh, acceptance speech, I think it was for the Nobel, um, he talked to, you know, I think he said, I do not, I learned this in middle school and I can almost do it verbatim since I probably mess it up a little bit. Um, but he basically said, I do not believe you know, in the end of man. I, you know, man is you know, immortal. I, he will prevail. He is immortal. Um, now I'm blowing the quote. I thought I could do it. Um, but that was Faulkner's message was that humankind, you know, and he said this in a time when people were worried about the existential threat of nuclear weapons, which we still have. Um, but we don't worry about it like we did back in, in his day. Um, but the, and the, the concept was, you know, I don't accept that humanity is going to end because, you know, human, hum, humanity's ability to solve its problems, you know, exceeds its ability to create them. Mm. Um, what I find interesting, the reason this quote comes back to mind to me often is that, um, you know, in Faulkner's mind, the way he described it, I wish I could remember the, the poet, uh, the, the words more precisely, um, was that it was going to be, you know, the poet, the writer, the social scientist and the social voice that motivated humanity to overcome its problems and survive. Whereas today, I think it's the, you know, the combination of our technical genius working with our social genius, right? And that's why I get so excited and so optimistic about having you know, all these engineering students who just want to improve the world. That's what gives me the optimism. It's not that I have just great engineering students. And it's not just that kids these days want to make the world better. It's that engineering students want to make the world better. And that is to me what, um, you know, what, what gives me the belief that we are going to, you know, overcome our hurdles and, and solve our problems, you know, albeit with some pain along the way, um, as we've already really seen, right? If you, if you've watched California burn this year, um, you know, you, you know that these solutions aren't going to come without without pain in the process. Absolutely. Yeah, but it, it does. I, I agree with your optimism. I just think the problems are solvable and, and we're on that path. But yeah, we need we need equity. We need inclusion. We need smart engineers solving problems. And, and we need that professionalism, too. It's just it's a it's a multifaceted thing. I, I have one last question. And then we, we do need to to um, to wrap up before uh, we run out of time. Last question is just one I really like to ask people, and I'm curious to hear how you'll answer it. It's a question of just divergent thought. It, and the question is, can you tell me something that you, that you believe to be true, that you know to be true, that most people would disagree with you about? Um, boy, that's a tricky one. That, mo that I believe to be true that most people would disagree with me about. Well, um, I don't know if I would say most, so there's a, if, if I keep, if I can answer that within the context of sort of academia, then I can answer that. But most people that listen may not have heard the, the, had an opinion one way or the other. So there is a lot of talk in the academic world that, um, you know, we're sort of approaching a cliff in terms of um, decreasing interest in higher ed 
across the United States, that because we are graduating less students um, in high school, that we're going to have this shortage of students coming into higher ed, and that a lot of universities are going to you know, really struggle with enrollment, and places like Penn State will do great, but others will go under. Um, and I think, you know, and I heard that story, and I disagree with it. Most people buy it as sort of dogma. Um, I heard that similar story like 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, it goes down to looking at the details of the model. So what's really happening is the, um, the demographics of high school graduates is changing because we have a growing Hispanic population and a not as fast, not fast growing um, white population. And if you assume, and, and in general in the United States, you know, whites go to college at a higher rate than, than Hispanic or Latinx or black. Um, however, if you assume, if you just focus say on the Latinx right now, that like every other immigrant group in the last hundred plus years in the United States, that, you know, as you get into second and third generation, the rate of going to college goes up, right? Then you actually will see that what's going to change is the demographic of the college student, not necessarily a plummeting of the number. And so- you know, so when I think about it, I ask myself, and this isn't a problem for next year, because right now the numbers, are, you know, it's one of those things where the forecasts are all, for the next few years it will keep going up and then it's going to drop. But that few years seems to shift. You know, how are we thinking about, you know, the next generation of students or maybe next half generation um, that are coming through our K-12 system? How are we making sure that we're preparing you know, and this goes back to the equity and inclusion topic, but it takes it into a younger domain, but it also takes it beyond STEM and into the, you know, the, the broader population. How do we ensure that we're instilling the value of higher ed in all of our K-12 populations and ensuring that when they get through high school, the system is there for them to have affordability and access, right? So rather than having this panic of, oh no, there's not gonna be enough students, why don't we think about how do we how do we really take advantage of the you know the students that are coming through our K twelve system and prepare them to really you know in the same way we have previous generations? I like that. I mean, it sounds like you're looking at it uh, like an engineer solving a problem yeah. as a yeah. system, which I, I think is a pretty good way to look at it. Yes, the um, world is a big system. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it seems perfectly perfectly rational to me. Yeah. Um, Justin, I need to wrap us up there. And uh, I've really just uh, absolutely enjoyed this conversation with you. Me too. Thanks for having so, me. Thank you. Let me put, can I put one plug in, Jeremy? Oh, yeah, please. So we talked here and there about during the, this past hour about Learning Factory. I want everybody out there to know that our Learning Factory is always looking for more industry partners to come and have a team of three or four senior engineering undergraduates working with you on a project that you define. I know, Jeremy, you've done a bunch of them. Um, you don't have to be in state college. We have companies all across the country that work with us and you will not regret it if you join. I will absolutely endorse that as well. We've done uh, probably a dozen of those types of projects and it's both, it's fun, rewarding, and you get a positive outcome and it's a great way to recruit and get to know the students as well. So yeah, absolutely. I heartily endorse that. Great. Yeah. It's been quite a pleasure. And I, uh, uh, thank you very much, Justin Schwartz, Dean of Engineering at Penn State University. And this is the Workforce Focus Group.
topics uh, in industrial transformation. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com. And check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com. Thank you.